Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hazen. I am your host. And joining me on today's podcast is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? Oh, living another day in quarantined paradise. Also joining us on today's podcast is Megan Payne. Megan, how are you? Um, it definitely could be better. It's, um, let's just say the 2020, especially the past few weeks, have really been kicking me right in the backside. Yeah, 2020 is not a fun year, y'all. <laughs> Seriously. Um, so on today's podcast, we are going to recap uh, the elections that happened in Georgia last week, last Tuesday. Um, as you probably saw or as you maybe experienced yourself uh, when you went to the polls, the administration of Tuesday's elections was an absolute nightmare. Um, so we are going to first start off with a discussion about how challenging administering this election was and trying to work through the blame game that has now started between county election officials and state election officials about who is ultimately responsible for Tuesday's election debacle. Then we are recording on Sunday afternoon, um, and it was, I think, a good thing that we waited until Sunday afternoon because if you were closely watching election returns this week, the stories... Uh, that we were focused on on Wednesday, the day after the election, changed pretty significantly from Wednesday to Sunday. John Ossoff avoided a runoff. Uh, Carolyn Bordeaux in Georgia's 7th Congressional District, she looks like she is going to avoid a runoff, as well as David Scott, an incumbent congressman from Georgia's 13th Congressional District. Um, so we're going to dive into the results and uh, take a peek at coming elections in November. Uh, but before we get started, um, if you missed it, on Friday we published our discussion on the events of the last few weeks, starting with the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis and then the ensuing demonstrations that happened in cities across Georgia and across the country. Uh, we were joined uh, on that episode by State Representative Eric Allen, uh, State House candidate Mocha Jasmine Johnson, and a candidate for district attorney east of the city of Atlanta, Destiny Bryant. Um, that was a pretty wide-ranging discussion about policy solutions facing the state and, and our reflections about where we are in our politics and in our society when we have witnessed yet another black man in America killed at the hands of police. We are recording on Sunday afternoon, so listeners probably saw in the news over the weekend that on Friday night, Rayshard Brooks uh, was shot and killed by police uh, during a DUI stop at a Wendy's off of University Avenue in Atlanta. Um, that touched off more demonstrations that blocked uh, the downtown connector on Saturday night. So, we didn't want to let that go without mentioning it and, and reiterating that this conversation to end violence against black people in our state and in our country at the hands of police, that is a conversation that is desperately needed at this time. Luke or Megan, any other any any other reflections on on yet another death of a black man at the hands of police and and this one, another one that occurs in our city in Atlanta? Yeah, I'm I have, I'm I'm not surprised, unfortunately, because this is 
the world we seem to live in, but I am appalled. This would be the time that you would think the Atlanta police would be especially cognizant of how certain situations are handled, given current events, given the added scrutiny, given that the eye of the media is on every police move that is made, and then for the police to react by pulling out a gun and lethally killing a man. It's just appalling, and I don't know if anyone has had the chance to watch the video, but it's pretty upsetting, um, and it seemed very uncalled for that they would use lethal force. The other thing that I'm a little bit surprised at is um, Chief of Police Shields stepping down. Um, I'm not going to say it's unwarranted. I honestly don't have enough uh, information to say that or not. What I will say is this. I thought that she was making a good effort at first although there have definitely been some failings on the Atlanta Police Department. But I also also appreciate that it seems like she and Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms made the decision based on um, current events and based on calls from the NAACP for uh, Chief of Police Shields to step down. So I'm hoping for some hopefully positive change to come out of that and for the state to really take a good look at the APD and all other law enforcement and to see if we have the right people leading them and if we're doing enough to keep folks safe. I I can think of a few clearer examples why it is so important to use the phrase Black Lives Matter. Uh, You know, as being the fan of YouTube as I am, seeing people freak out in drive-through lines is a subgenre that uh, I have found entertaining from time to time. And, you know, I mean, it's notable just how often almost unanimously those people are white where while like yes it is an inconvenience to a business and to having someone passed out in their drive-through like is it the proper response to bring people who primarily are trained in the use of force to handle what really is a job a social worker would be far more academically and skill set qualified for and so this is why you know while i will quibble that defund the police is a bad nomenclature because it doesn't actually highlight what the goal is in this situation to me the complete ridiculousness of it in this time where everyone's hiding awareness should be heightened about these issues and that shooting an unarmed african-american man is not a great idea anytime but especially now it should be on everyone's mind every police officer's mind how risky it is to do that and the fact that that is still how this situation ended up to me is just further confirmation of how important it is to have the public devote more resources to addressing society's ills and addressing problems beyond just throwing more money at the police department because the inadequacy of officers trainings and the job that we ask police officers to do is not this like this situation is not what a cop should do there's there should be some other public service that is available for when something like this happens uh if there is an authority that has to be called it shouldn't be one with a gun 100 percent 100 percent One, it speaks to whether or not the police are listening to the demands of demonstrators, and it just doesn't seem like they are. Right. It seems like Chief Shields might be, but that might be, she might be about the only one. All right. Well, let's move on to our first topic for this week. So Complete Meltdown was the headline adorning the AJC on Wednesday morning. 
Voters who went to the polls on Tuesday were greeted with long lines, technical difficulties, and confusion over absentee ballots as they ventured out to vote during a pandemic. The chaos touched off a round of finger-pointing between county and state officials about who was ultimately responsible for elections and who was shouldering the blame for the chaos of Tuesday. And it previewed even more chaos that could ensue during the general election in November if officials in state and local governments don't take this problem seriously. Megan, let's start with you and just an overview of the situation that voters faced at the polls on Tuesday. You know, what problems did voters face and how widespread were they? Everyone knows it was chaos, but but specifically what flavor of chaos did voters face at the polls? First and foremost, voters faced in extremely long lines, hours and hours long at many precincts. And this wasn't just on voting uh, day, by the way, or election day. This was also during early voting that we heard about voters experiencing incredibly long lines. A lot of this had to do with the consolidation of precincts um, for a few reasons. Many people may know that we lost some precincts due to the COVID-19 situation and locations that were and weren't available. But for example, Park Tavern became a consolidation of five different polling locations for more than 13,000 people, which is just insane. Um, precincts were also supplied with fewer voting machines because they were you know, thinking that having fewer machines would allow for greater social distancing. But the problem with having fewer machines is that when some of these machines malfunctioned, which they did, precincts, you know, had to sit there and troubleshoot them and had fewer machines available. And so some precincts even opened late because they couldn't get things up and running. In it, as I mentioned, there were voting machines that failed. We had lots of technical problems. There were failed electronic poll books. There were jammed printers. There were crashing tablets. Um, some of the basis of voting required a phone call and the phone lines would back up. Um, I personally experienced a scanner jam when I went and voted early and I had to call the voter protection hotline to see if my vote was even counted because the scanner threw an error and then the poll workers basically said, oh, it's fine and told me to leave because they weren't going to open up the scanner with me standing there. In addition to my experience with the scanners, um, the scanners seemed really problematic at where voters got caught in the rain. And this was mainly on the coastal areas of the state. Additionally, a lot of these machines weren't adequately tested. We basically had a similar situation to what happened in the Iowa caucuses, where we just didn't have the infrastructure in place to support the issues that we were going to experience, as well as just didn't have the training in place to be able to implement them. There was also a lot of confusion about how to proceed if voters requested an absentee ballot but didn't get it, did not get it, which happened to several people that I know. And there were there were more problems than this, but these were the main ones. And so most of these problems were seen in Fulton and DeKalb. And because of this, somewhere in the ballpark of 20 counties kept polls open past the 7 p.m. closing time. And I think I heard the latest that polls were open was perhaps, I think it was Union City that were open until around 12.30 a.m. on June 10th. Yeah, so there was a whole mess of problems at the polls on Tuesday. A lot of this is actually built on 
a really terrible environment that election administrators had to face. You know, everyone knows we're in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. We're also putting forward this entirely new voting system, a voting system that is more complicated, has more steps than the voting system that we had prior to this. The fact that it has more steps in some sense is a good thing because it allows the institution of at least some paper backup trail, um, but it added to the confusion and the complexity about how to actually run through the voting process. And then the people who had to run through this voting process, the poll workers, in a lot of cases were people who were not as experienced as poll workers that are typically staffing the polls. And that had a lot to do with the fact that we were voting in the middle of a pandemic. You know, the average poll worker is 70 years old. In Georgia, a lot of poll workers either didn't show up um, or weren't, you know, didn't show up on the day of or canceled in advance. They weren't comfortable being in a public place at this time. And that combined with precinct consolidation, combined with the delays caused by all this confusion around absentee ballots, all of that layered on top of the pandemic just made a complete mess of things. Luke, what do you make of all of these troubles? I mean, we knew we were voting in a pandemic, but I don't think anyone expected the chaos that we faced on Tuesday. What did you make of all of these difficulties? Well, Kyle, I, I, I did. <laughs> I expected the chaos. And, you know, part of it's, I mean, one, it's a pandemic. So that added to, for me, that that meant chaos was almost assured. You combine the very just true fact that this was a new system. And if you introduce any new system into almost any environment, like the first time you have to test it, it's just going to go bad, you know? And so for that, I mean, is that an excuse? No, it is an explanation. So, I mean, I'm just frankly unsurprised because using a new system anytime is very difficult. Using a new system under these circumstances, I don't see how it could not have gone this badly and the reason why that is is because and this is something we've discussed previously is that like running elections well is not a priority of the state of georgia like there's a lot of priorities the state of georgia has you can see it when they exist like keeping the film industry here or cutting taxes on by many of the republicans in the legislature they will express their obsession with these topics Running elections well is not one of them. They they will go through the motions and pretend that they care, but it's just low on the priority list. And it's kind of hard to blame them because it's not just the state government that has this problem, but counties as well. I mean, you know, there are lots of things the state wants to do. There are a lot of things the county wants to do. And run elections well is not at the top of the list because it just is not something that affects you very often. I mean, for... You know, most places, it's a thing that pops up every two years that you have to deal with and you don't really get like no no county, no no elected official, no government bureaucrat will get plaudits and applause from the their constituents for having the elections well run. It's these situations where it's so incredibly bad is the only time people ever talk about it. Yeah. And I so I found interesting in the wake of Tuesday's election, the reaction of state officials to be interesting. It, it, you know, you didn't get the impression on the front end that running smooth elections was a high priority for the state, but you did get the impression on the back end that once people saw chaos, people wanted to see uh, elected officials calling for investigations, calling for some kind of accountability, 
Only the only problem seemed to be that uh, nobody wanted to take any of that accountability onto themselves. So you got into this round of finger pointing where Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger announced an investigation of DeKalb and Fulton counties and said that most of the problems in this election were at root uh, the fault of counties who didn't train poll workers properly, who weren't on top of it enough in terms of preparing for an election amidst the pandemic. You also saw the House Speaker, David Ralston, call for an investigation. And his call was a little bit different than Raffensperger's because he took to task both the counties and the Secretary of State's office and sort of made a point to say that the proper venue for an investigation was at a committee in the House of Representatives so that it was not housed within the Secretary of State's office because the Secretary of State played a role in the debacle on Tuesday. What do y'all make of this, you know, quick snap to calling investigations, you know, trying to bring people forward to figure out what was wrong, um, when in a lot of ways, what was wrong was actually predictable before all of this happened? Right? So, yes, it was predictable. I generally am pro-investigations because it leads to more facts, and I think more facts is is better. I think it's fine for Raffensperger to do his own investigation, but I'm happy that Ralston wants to do one as well because if it's in a committee, that means there are Democrats there and that they have a chance to answer questions. And if uh, the Trump administration has shown us anything, it is the importance of having the ability to ask public officials questions. Um, And so I think that would be beneficial. But we're not going to solve this problem until someone opens up the government checkbook. Uh, And and the thing I want to say ahead of time is weighing who is more responsible, I think it's very hard at this point. The thing that's unquestionable to me, though, is that it is is definitely the fault of both entities because there are plenty of big counties like Clark County that had a ton of people voting and had pretty much no problems. And there are plenty of counties like Fulton DeKalb that are, are big and had a lot of problems. But most of the problems really come down to a question of like money and attention. Because the reason why you have really long lines is because you don't have enough places for people to vote or machines for people to vote on or workers working at the station. Like, those are the only reasons lines get long. Because, as you know, there are definitely some people who take a super long time to vote, but I really don't think that one person taking 30 minutes to go through, you know, a 20 question ballot is going to hold up a line for four hours. Right. And so uh, on that front, if you invest more resources on training poll workers, hiring poll workers, having precincts, having machines, this lying issue will subside because I am aware of a report of at least one precinct that was held up for like an hour because they didn't know to flip a card around. They had a card upside down. And because of that, it took them an hour to figure that out. And that's just bad training. And the fact that if you are a county or if you're Brad Raffensperger or people who work for Brad Raffensperger and you have not trained people properly enough to do that, then like that's a serious problem. And I think both are responsible because you can't just say as the single highest elected official in the state who runs elections that, well, I told the counties to do X. Like, no, it's your job to check that the counties are doing that. But at the same time, like the counties should should do better as well. And so on, on that front, I think 
the real answer will probably be it's both their faults. Maybe not equally, but both have a lot of blame that should be laid on their hands because this is a serious thing that, you know, there's not a lot of trust in Georgia when it comes to elections. And so if you're it, when you're in that environment, it's sort of like exactly like the police conversation we're having. When you're in this environment where people are, you know, are not trusting you, you should go above and beyond to earn that trust back. Right. Well, I, it just baffles. It, it blows my mind that this was not better handled, like you were saying, Luke. And I agree with you saying that it's probably both the fault of the counties as well as Raffensperger. But I ask you, why would you run to be secretary of state and not be willing to take responsibility for the role that your office provides? Like, I don't really care how badly the county supposedly messed this up. I think, Luke, you hit the nail on the head when you said that ultimately, you know, it's it's down to Raffensperger to make sure that this election, that, that training is provided in those sorts of things. So I think that I definitely have a strong feeling and a, a strong opinion, rather, that this lies much further into Raffensperger's court than it does in the counties. I will agree that both made mistakes, but Raffensperger should have checked. Raffensperger should have made sure that there was training in place. Raffensperger should have made sure there was enough machines in place. And if he wasn't going to do that, then why the hell does he deserve to be secretary of state? It was interesting to me to watch the messaging out of the Secretary of State's office this week. Um, I think the most interesting person to watch was Gabriel Sterling. He is the statewide voting implementation manager at the Secretary of State's office. He is the point person for rolling out these new machines. And I was surprised. You know, I got sort of two very distinctly different tones from Gabriel Sterling in the media that he participated in that I was able to find, you know, in brief interviews that he did on Political Rewind and on CNN, he was very adamant that the Secretary of State's office really tried with these counties, that the, it was the fault of counties. But there was a sense that, like, he had talking points that he wanted to pursue to very clearly place blame where the Secretary of State's office thought that it should be. Then he did this interview with a Decatur-ish, a, a local media outlet in Decatur. They host these live Twitch streams. We'll link to this one in show notes because I thought this discussion was really interesting where this was in a media environment, I think a little more similar to what we do, something that was a little more relaxed and a place where Gabriel Sterling felt more comfortable giving more sort of long-form answers and longer descriptions about what went on. And in this environment, he did concede that the counties were facing really significant challenges. He noted that in Fulton County, one election worker actually died of COVID. Another election worker who was overseeing the absentee ballot process in Fulton got COVID, spent some time in the hospital, and that actually ground the absentee ballot operation in Fulton County to a halt. Um, he repeated over and over again that they really tried with Fulton to figure out, do you have enough workers? Do you have the resources that you need? You know, and everyone can make their own decisions about, you know, how much to trust Gabe Sterling in this context. I, I felt like he was being genuine about the efforts that the Secretary of State's office put forward. What I didn't see, though 
I well, I the first thing is I thought that that messaging in a in a different, much smaller forum was interesting. It did lend to this idea that the Secretary of State's office was interested in making it as easy as possible for people to vote and trying to bend over backwards to work with counties to help them navigate this terrible process that they have to navigate through. And he surfaced a bunch of other challenges that this the Secretary of State's office faces at the state level and actually providing some of this oversight. That was not the message that came through in more broadly broadcast platforms that they participated in. And it certainly wasn't the message that came from the actual Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. And what I came away with that with was, one, there just didn't seem to be adequate contingency planning, and maybe the Secretary of State's office didn't feel like they had the authority to do proper contingency planning with the counties. But second, that the Secretary of State's office faces a real political challenge And I don't think this challenge is entirely Raffensperger's fault. I think Kemp, when he was Secretary of State, left Brad Raffensperger with a really bad hand um, in terms of people's perception of the Secretary of State's office. And they didn't go out of their way in really popular media to sort of position themselves as the convener of solutions. They took the opportunity to place blame, to say we couldn't do anything to help, And in the environment that the Secretary of State's office is in, I think that was a really big mistake because it just further undermined people's confidence in his leadership and his ability to, you know, this was a primary. We're all scared as hell about what's going to happen with the general election when probably three or four times more people go vote and whether or not there is a capacity at the state and local level to fix this problem before November. And I just don't feel like him being a convener of solutions was something that was broadcast very widely this week. And, you know, it makes me think of two things. One, if you are a Georgia voter, you can now request your absentee ballot. I highly suggest you do that so that you can go ahead and get in the system and you are more likely to get your absentee ballot sometime in early September, and then you can get it turned in. And that will be a big help to uh, both yourself and getting it done, but also to (laughs) this overall election process uh, so that you know, there's less strain on election day. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, I agree with you, Kyle, like this is a real lost opportunity for Raffensperger, I think, because Kemp took such a adversarial approach to criticism that he really had an opportunity that he was building on to just like be a tone change and shift from Kemp. Because again, I gave him credit and I'll still give him credit. They advertised the hell out of the request for absentee ballots like i i saw ads for that almost every day where they had sent they they sent you know they had tv advertisements of the mailer they had sent asking people to turn in absentee ballots and i think that was very wildly successful a lot of people did it well and luke gabriel sterling talked about that and compared that to the vote by mail system that exists in oregon and washington and colorado And he said, we were really proud of this because Oregon and Washington and Colorado took several years to set up an entire vote by mail system in their state. And we aggressively advertised a vote by mail system that we built in six weeks. Right. And they deserve credit. In a lot of ways, it worked. Yeah, definitely. There, you know, because there's always going to be problems and they were definitely not perfect. But I mean, for all in all, 
that was an area where, to me, it seems like they were genuinely trying to do the right thing. Yeah. And I, gave, I give them a lot of credit for yeah, that. Yeah, that's a win. And the thing that frustrates me, though, is because in this blame game that they're playing, what they should have been doing is, you know, because I don't know everything, but Clark County obviously did something right because Clark County had really long lines. Uh, last November, uh, they only had one early vote location that didn't have parking which has been my hobby horse uh with a lot of people i know in clark county complaining about it and this time that was not the case we had multiple early vote locations that were open for uh the whole early vote period a ton of people used absentee ballots we had an absentee ballot drop-off mailbox and so election day was super smooth and so you know, Ravensburger, instead of just saying, oh, the counties did everything wrong, he could have, like, highlighted Clark County, which, you know, politically would be a really bipartisan, nice thing to do, and be like, these guys did everything, you know, these guys did these things right, and you should copy them in the future. But instead, you know, they're just saying, we did nothing wrong, they did everything wrong. And it's just so frustrating, because, again, they really had set themselves up for a better response. Even with all these problems, they still could have been seeing as a more proactive partner towards solutions than they are putting themselves in now. It's just frustrating to me. That's true. I wonder, though, about the difference in Clark County and how it functions versus a county like Fulton, where we know that North Fulton and South Fulton might as well be two separate counties um, with not only the just differences in how the counties function, but also differences in how the, not the county, geez, I talk about like, I talk about them like two separate counties already. Um, there are a lot of differences between North Fulton and South Fulton just in process and in also money. So I wonder if that's probably part of the issue with Fulton that maybe Clark didn't experience. I'm sure it didn't help. So, you know, despite all of this, and I think a little bit lost in the blame game is that the Secretary of State did actually propose a solution um, we are recording on Sunday. There are supposed to be more details about this solution coming out on Monday after we record. But Gabriel Sterling talked a little bit about this with Decatur-ish. He said that one idea that the Secretary of State will ask the legislature to give them the authority to do is to have greater power to intervene and institute management changes in counties where the State Board of Elections finds out that there are problems. Uh, he framed this as a similar authority uh, to a peach pod deep cut Luke, the chief turnaround officer uh, oh in the Department of Education and, and somebody who reports directly to the governor who can step in and take control of, of local things. So, somewhere Nathan Deal's heart is fluttering. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, the challenging thing here is, is I'm kind of of two minds about this because in a lot of ways, I'm thinking, yes, that would be great. What we are sort of talking about here is the need for someone to take responsibility and the entity that has the resources and the expertise that needs to take this responsibility is the Secretary of State's office. On the other hand, if the Secretary of State is granted this responsibility, do we have faith that it will be used, this authority will be used to help people vote more smoothly in the runoff elections in August or in the general election in November. This, I think, gets at this crisis of confidence in the Secretary of State's office itself and the partisan nature with the way that office has approached elections before. 
you know, so, I don't I know. Mean, well, I mean, answer, I'm not convinced that this is well, the ideal say, the solution. The answer to me is very simple, Kyle, which is if we're going to go that route, which I mean very well might be helpful, there has to be oversight. You know, we can't just give a bunch of power without oversight. Yeah. So if they want to propose this new person and this new power, then they there needs to be some sort of accountability for it so they can't just run wild. So just being honest, you know, I, I usually am on the side that things are more caused by incompetence than malevolence. And I think with this, this is just a hard problem that no one really cares about until once every two years. And because of that being true, having someone who really does feel like it is their job to make sure this is done right, because, I mean, let's just assume we're in a world where there is a chief elections officer in the state of Georgia, like, they would be fired right yeah. now, right? Like, had we had this person in place for two years, and they're like, I'm going to run the state's elections great, and that's my only job, whereas Raffensperger has, you know, 8,000 other jobs. To be fair, as Secretary of State, you do a lot. If there's one person who's in charge and we had this, we would be like, you're fired. So, like, that that I would like, honestly. And so if we could build some accountability into that position so that they couldn't go into a county that's doing things right and screw it up for political purposes, I think that might be a great solution. It's just, again, depend. devil's always in the details. Yeah. I want to stop and talk a minute, though. Can we talk about the legislature's interest in elections lately, and particularly how Ralston has kind of pivoted heavily toward the center, supporting not only, um, you know, investigations on these elections, but perhaps even some legislative oversight over elections, and then also recently calling for the hate crimes bill to be passed. Can we can we stop and talk about that for a minute? What is happening? <laughs> I think there's two things going on. You know, obviously, I think weighing on his mind is the elections in November that uh, if they happen without our entire democracy falling apart, there is a chance that Democrats could take over the majority in the state house. The other thing, though, that was apparent specific to the issue of elections in his interview with Political Rewind on Wednesday was they just spent a lot of money in the legislature to authorize the purchase of these new voting machines, they have on an almost annual basis made tweaks to election law following controversies in prior elections. And I think that there, the insertion of Republican leadership in the House of Representatives into election issues, I think has given them some sense of ownership over the outcomes that maybe was easier to push off when we were using an election system that was authorized 20 years ago when Democrats were in control, and it's just not really the problem of the House of Representatives. I got the sense that there was a little bit of a greater degree of ownership here. And I do think that when Ralston feels like he owns something, like he did with rural development issues, like things start to move. I, I think he is still a center of power in the legislature. Um, the question is, though, is do people follow him, including the lieutenant governor leading the Senate and, and Governor Kemp? Fair. Yeah, and just to, you know, add a little bit to that, you know, Rol Ralston is not the burn it all down type Republican. He He's not, you know, a big fan of giant government or wanting the government to get involved in everything. But, you know, there are some things he thinks government should do, and typically he would like them to do them well and 
not intrusively. And, you know, he, I, I uh, disagree with him on a lot of policy, but he is definitely someone who likes the stake of Georgia and does not like the stake of Georgia to be getting Shigong in the national news. <laughs> so, I mean, just for that and adding, like Kyle said, I think they are trying to take ownership because even just blatantly, like blatantly politically speaking, take take your good governance thoughts out of it. Like it's not good for your political party is if your big 2019 push was, hey, let's spend a bunch of money on this new election system and it sucks really, really badly, more badly than the last one, then that is a political liability at a certain point, just because even your most independent right-leaning voter does not like to waste a bunch of money, especially if they have to wait in a, you know, five-hour line to go vote. So, you know, if anything, might switch someone to the left side is dealing with that, maybe. So I think, I think that's, definitely part of his calculation as well he doesn't want to hear the word boondoggle from his primary challenges up in his district. <laughs> that's such a fun word though even though i get that he doesn't want to hear it um okay that makes a lot of sense i like i said i just wanted to talk about that for a second and i i'm glad that somebody is taking ownership right because as we as we've discussed over the past little bit here it doesn't seem like raffensperger is particularly interested in uh the buck stops here mentality that we would hope would come from his office so the other point that I think this raises is this is now yet another election where we spend the days following the election talking about all of the problems with administration, all of the problems with the rules governing elections, whether or not people have confidence in the outcomes of these elections, and what needs to be done to quit having this problem. And in the past, you know, we've talked about lawsuits that pick at individual policies that appear to violate uh, like pretty plainly clear constitutional requirements, particularly on the federal level, things that have changed the exact match policy, things that have changed policies regarding who can help you cast a ballot in the ballot box on the, along the lines of like interpreters or, or helping people with disabilities, things like that. I have felt like for far too long, we have sort of nibbled around the edges of the core problem here of at the end of the day, it sort of feels like when it comes to the right to vote in Georgia, the buck stops nowhere. And there is no forcing entity that can make action happen in the moment when action is needed to make sure that people feel like their vote will be counted and to make people feel like it is worth it for them to stand in line, to take time away from their work or their children to go vote. There's just so many problems that I feel like, you know, regardless of whether you think any of this influences elections or what the intent is, there are countless numbers of individual people who see these lines at polling places and think it's not worth it for me to stand in this line and so I'm not going to do it. And that to me raises this more fundamental question of how do we force action to protect people's right to vote in a more foundational sense? Well, well, can I, can I stop you there, Kyle? Yeah. That feels true. That narrative like resonated me with me while I was listening to it. But while you were saying that I was also being ADHD and looking at the election results and you say that, but like, uh, you know, nearly 2 million people voted. 
in in the primaries. And I mean, that's more than I remember from any previous primary, I think. Uh, and a lot of people took advantage of the absentee ballots, and, and a lot of people did stand in those five-hour lines. You know, like there's a reason they kept the polls open until 10 p.m. in some places, and that's it's really because there was a lot of people who were willing to put up with it. And I, I think it definitely does dissuade some people uh, from from doing it. But I, you know, I think honestly, the answer to how do we get a better system, how do we hold people more accountable, is what we're doing right now, which is talking about it and not letting anyone think that this is acceptable because the reason why even Raffensperger is investigating what happened is because he feels like it's a liability for him for it to keep being this bad. And I I think that is a sign of progress as well. And this is also why I think that it's so important that groups like Fair Fight, groups like the NAACP have brought this these situations to court because that is if you know it's one of those sayings where if everyone's pointing at everyone saying this is their fault this is that fault and no one wants to be held accountable that's when the judiciary can play a very key role in the checks and balances because they they can end the game of hot potato and basically just say no this is your fault you're going to do this they're going to do that and we're going to get this problem fixed yeah i think that raises for me stronger judicial protections for the right to vote. You know, there is not an explicit right to vote in the Constitution. I mean, I think maybe there should be. I think if you get to a point where you could put a explicit right to vote in the Constitution, you could probably also pursue a package of reforms that would reinvent the voting system to make it more friendly, uh, to keep some of the things that work, like we're pretty good at voter registration, uh, but the election day administration, as we've discussed, is a complete nightmare. I feel like the place that we've been in isn't good enough for attacking that foundational problem. But I also think if Republicans are listening to this and maybe thinking that they get some marginal political benefit out of it, I don't, I don't think that the effect of what they're doing is absolutely clear because I think some people are dissuaded. And I think others hear that their right to vote is being challenged, attempted to be taken away from them, and that this is an era that is not uh, dissimilar from the era before the Voting Rights Act, and they feel motivated to get out there and exercise their right to vote, and they fight through the barriers and do it anyways. What I'm interested in, what I am interested in, is a world where they don't have to do that. All right. So despite all of the chaos, we do have some election results. We waited until Sunday to record thinking that there would be a delay. And I think by the time we've reached Sunday, we have started to get clarity on on most of the top line races. Um, some of the top line results that we'll talk about, John Ossoff was declared the victor in the Democratic Senate primary. In Georgia's 7th Congressional District, there are now two candidates who or we, we know which candidates will be fighting it out in the general, Rich McCormick and Carolyn Bordeaux. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about David Scott narrowly avoiding a runoff of his own. Um, and one of the key takeaways from this vote that I think serves as a measure of enthusiasm that we can talk about is that more Democrats voted in a primary election compared to Republicans, which I think, and, and Luke, you can... Uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, I think this is the first cycle that we've seen that on a statewide basis, um, you know, since the Republican takeover of Georgia in the early 2000s. 
Uh, to my knowledge, yes. Uh, I I try to have encyclopedic knowledge of Georgia elections, but uh, I will admit that I'm pretty sure that it, it's been the first time since the Republican takeover. So the top headline here, I think, is uh, for Democrats here, it is that John Ossoff was declared the winner of the Democratic Senate primary. He avoided a runoff with Teresa Tomlinson and is now able to pivot his campaign with a focused to David Perdue in the general election in November. Um, Ossoff did pretty quickly get the backing of Sarah Rigsamico, the the candidate who finished third in that race. And I think the big question for Democrats here, now that we get to the end of the primary, is did they pick the right candidate to have the best shot to beat David Perdue in November? Megan, what do you think about that question? I think that of the candidates that were available, he probably was the one that had the best shot anyway. I had a lot of people come to me and ask me, who are you voting for for that? And I basically gave them a list of reasons why they could vote for half of the field. Um, He was not personally my vote, I will say that. But what I told everyone who asked me was that if I were a betting person, I would bet on him at least going into a runoff and him being one of maybe two candidates that could stand up to Purdue. I think a quick note, I don't really back candidates on this show, but I actually think the three of us supported, or I mean, I didn't vote. I'm in DC, obviously, but I think the three of us favored three different candidates in this race. Is that true? I was uh, for Ossoff, so. I voted for Tomlinson. If I had voted, I think I would have voted for Amico, so. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. <laughs> and, and rare. You know, the, we usually align more yeah. closely. Well, so the thing, and I, I mentioned this before, so I'm not going to just like rehab the same conversation I've had before. But I mean, I, the fact that I voted for Ossoff, if you told me that at the beginning of this race, I would have like been like, how? How did that happen? And I think, it, I mean, like just the results we see is indicative of the campaign he he ran because you can't say it's name recognition because Sarah Riggs Amico already ran statewide and did pretty well. I mean, she got very close to Jeff Duncan's, you know, as you know, in the similar way that Abrams did. So I, I don't think it, this was a purely name recognition driven thing, especially since the person who got in second was Tomlinson, who at the beginning of her campaign, most people unless they were, you know, hacks like us, had no idea who she I was. Will, and I think it, I, I will yes, I don't think it was exclusively name recognition, but I'm going to say this and I it was name recognition p- plus having a penis. Well, that I think is actually really interesting because it breaks with the recent trend in democratic primary politics going back to 2018, especially in Georgia. In Georgia, you know, Steve Henson, the Democratic minority leader in the state Senate almost lost his reelection to a completely unknown primary challenger. And in general, you saw women candidates sweep races up and down the board in 2018. The governor's race was a, a contest between two women candidates. No, no men even jumped into that race. And so I actually was surprised. I'm not surprised that Ossoff finished first. I was a little bit surprised that he avoided a runoff in a field that wide when Democratic voters in at least, you know, since the election of Trump have been pretty clear that they want to see women candidates in Congress and they have been putting them there in Georgia and in states across the country. Yes, it is still an uphill battle, though. 
There is a lot of room to improve upon those statistics and that area. And I really do think that that gender came into play here. So I am obviously a, a guy, so I am not going to be nearly as adept at seeing it. But my question for you, because I think it would be interesting, is, is how. Because like Kyle said, the general trend in Georgia primaries is that women candidates have been doing a lot better. And I mean, there's lots of examples, even of this year, of women candidates being male candidates and being male incumbents. To me, gender just did not feel like a, a big dynamic and being the political consultant hack I am, I would primarily associate this with just better campaigning. So what what elements of gender did you see in the race that I might be missing? So what I saw specifically in this race is that Purdue has a super long-standing tenure um, as well as a reputation, as well as backs Trump and is a really strong Republican candidate and also a man. And what I feel like I am seeing is that in order to unseat someone like that, especially in a state like ours that tends to lean more conservative, is you have to have a candidate that can really stand up to him. And the perception, I feel like, is that a female candidate is not something that Georgia is ready for. Georgia is not ready to unseat Purdue for Tomlinson, but might be ready to unseat Purdue for Ossoff because he's a more known entity, if you will, because. Yeah, I mean, I've heard that narrative like with like why Joe Biden did not, you know, like why Joe Biden did so well against all the other female candidates. But just I, I heard a lot of people talk about that race and it just never came up. So maybe I'm just in different circles. Uh, but yeah, mo that's just nothing, not a thing I ever heard. So, I mean, that's interesting, that angle, because it's just not one I would have put on that race. Gotcha. It's one that got discussed in my circles a lot. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. So I think it's interesting to sort of preview the campaign that John Ossoff looks like he will run against David Perdue. And I think in this, I can frame a little bit of why I found Sarah Riggs Amico compelling in a way that I did not find John Ossoff as compelling. I think John Ossoff is going to really hammer away at Purdue on the issue of corruption. You saw this in a memo that his campaign released, sort of previewing their strategy, talking about uh, Purdue skipping hearings on the health and safety of Georgia military families to meet with donors and lobbyists, selling access to his home for pack checks, purchasing stocks in PPE manufacturers in the lead up to the pandemic. Um, the stock stories that were similar that we heard about from Leffler, they were out there to a different degree for Purdue, but the the talking point that you'll hear about Purdue is that his stock trading increased by 300% in the lead up to the pandemic. That I think dovetails nicely with Ostop's own experience that he frames himself as this investigative uh, owner of an investigative media company that has pursued and exposed corruption in governments around the world. Um, you know, you can imagine him bringing that same sort of approach to a campaign against David Perdue. The thing that I found compelling about Sarah Examico that I think is a slightly different approach to campaigning against Perdue than the one you see here from Ossoff is I have been struck by the fact that 
to extrapolate from some views of the presidential race that voters in swing states give their trust to who can recover the nation's economy to Donald Trump still, despite everything that's happened in the last few years. And a lot of the rationale behind that, I, from what I've absorbed from coverage of this, is that people see Trump's experience as a businessman as giving him a sort of unique insight into how to jumpstart the American economy. Purdue can pitch himself in a similar way, Fortune 500 executive, rescued companies, all the kinds of things that he will say. And I am a little underwhelmed by and concerned about swing voters in Georgia trusting John Ossoff to be the candidate who can reinvigorate Georgia's economy and the American economy. And I was intrigued by Sarah Rigsamico, given her own experience as the chairwoman of her family's trucking company, and the way in which she used the story of the struggles of her company, contextualizing it to uh, trends with trade and with pensions that helped uh, harm her company financially to the point that they had to do this big restructuring, but that she offers a different path than the one David Perdue offers because she talks about she gave up equity to uh, protect the health care of her workers, protect the wages of her workers, and, and not lay anybody off. I thought there was a compelling pivot, a way to a, a way towards a more compassionate uh, capitalism that Sarah Riggs Amico could argue. And I don't know. I mean, running a little investigative film company just doesn't place us off in the same situation as sort of an economic powerhouse that Fortune 500 CEO David Perdue has. Any thoughts? Yeah, that's why we should have never elected that community organizer as president. <laughs> I mean, I know these things are surface level and, you know, part of the task for the Ossoff campaign will be to make it so, about so something actually, else. But, you know, that was just my take. Yeah, away. so what, what I would say is this is surface level stuff or deep. Actually, no, it's the opposite. It's deep level stuff that I think most voters don't think about because what you really see in campaigns is your ability to build a team. And it's quite clear to me, based off of what we saw from these other campaigns, is Ossoff built the best team. Because it's not like John Ossoff just walked out and, you know, spoke in a dark room and just magically became the senator. Like, he hired a bunch of people, he raised a lot of money, and they did a lot of work. Because I don't care who you are, in a field with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven candidates, getting 519 one percent of the vote in these circumstances is pretty impressive and so he obviously is doing something right and the team he has built is part of that and so i think regardless of the questions of what his economic experience is i think he is going to have the ability to build a team to address those issues and as a senator if he is successful which i desperately hope he is uh would be able to address those issues because not every senator has to be the you know, Fortune 500 uh, leaguer. And also in this time where a lot of people are fed up with the Fortune 500 crowd, maybe that's not a terrible thing. Yeah, the only other note I would add to your uh, thing, Luke, is that what put us off over the top over 50% was returns of absentee ballots, suggesting that his campaign was good at organizing on that front. And that's probably... Uh, 
spot on because many of the winning campaigns that I saw, that is that's how they won and won quite handedly. Um, another place where you did see some of this organization come through for a candidate was in the Georgia Seven race on uh, behalf of Carolyn Bordeaux. Um, early in the week, it looked like Bordeaux was going to get stuck in a runoff with Brenda Lopez Romero, a state representative uh, from Gwinnett County. Uh, that doesn't appear to be the case now. It looks like she is going to avoid a runoff and head to that general election in November. Um, I was honestly, and I'll, I'll get y'all's take on this outcome here. I was a little surprised given that we thought Zar Karinchak, state senator, and Nabila Islam, sort of the progressive challenger in that race, were the ones who seemed to be getting traction or have some of the components to give a compelling campaign. And I remember sort of being a little disappointed in the fundraising performance of Brenda Lopez Romero. What did y'all think about Romero getting second place there, almost forcing a runoff, um, but Bordeaux moving on to the general? I don't have super strong feelings Either way, I will say that I liked both candidates. Um, so I'm glad it came down to, I mean, at the end of the day, it came down to one of them, but I'm glad it, it looked like it was coming down to one of the two of them. So I just, I have a lot of hope for that that uh, congressional district. And, and to me, this is far less surprising uh, since... Representative Lopez Romero had been in the state house for some while. Like she, she was the person who had more name recognition in my mind and probably more connections to the political community. And with these results being as close as they were, um, it's, you know, cause it's not like she got a whole hell of a lot more votes than all the others. I mean, she got, 12.83% while Nabila Islam got 12.06, uh, which is a difference of less than a thousand votes. So, I mean, they, they all did pretty well. And I think this really just came down to, in some ways, is kind of the opposite of what I think happened in the Ossoff race. Like, I think Bordeaux probably had this one because she ran last time. She got 500 votes away. And most Democratic voters are smart. And they realize, like, if you get 500 votes away from an incumbent who had been there as long as Rob Woodall had, you're probably doing something right. And Bordeaux did good this time she didn't you know she didn't screw up in any way and so i think a lot of voters were probably hesitant to change horses midstream when you already had a candidate had kind of proven themselves already so bordeaux uh, is going to go on to face rich mccormick a first-time political candidate in the general election this is uh, a currently republican held seat rob woodall is retiring but this is a seat that is in republican hands McCormick, I think, is interesting, a bit intriguing as a candidate. Uh, I think mostly because he's a bit of a blank slate. Um, he handily defeated uh, State Senator Renee Unterman, the champion of the heartbeat abortion ban bill, who I think would have been a much more polarizing figure in the general election. Uh, McCormick is new to politics. He's somebody who has a little bit of plausible deniability. Uh, related to Trump because he did not vote in the 2016 election. Um, and, you know, just taking a brief look at some of his positions, he frames himself as sort of a moderate-ish 
not offensive candidate, he did uh, respond to an AJC questionnaire with the words, we need a robust legal immigration system, not the kind of immigration politics uh, that you're seeing from the Trumpy side of the party, not the kind of healthcare politics you're seeing from the Trumpy side of the party either. What do we think about that general election matchup? Any concerns that McCormick could keep that in Republican hands, or that's just a district that's changed so much that Bordeaux has the upper hand? I would say if there's anyone that could do it, <laughs> someone like Rich McCormick could, because I mean, he's literally a former Marine doctor who is pretty good looking by just objective standards. Oh, man. And so on on that, you know, like if there was a person who's just like poster boy, this is what a congressman looks like, like he just is that person. <laughs> so on that sense, if anyone could do it, it's probably him. Um, that being said, like, I kind of feel like in a Republican primary, you can skate away with like not being very detail-oriented and trying to just be like, I'm all things for all people. But when, like, Carolyn Bordeaux starts, like, hitting him on things and making him be more accountable than you just ever will be when you're in a primary, especially one where you're kind of like a sleeper candidate that comes out of nowhere, I think it'll be interesting to see how he responds to that. Because if he responds well, then he very well might be able to hold that seat for Republicans. If not, I feel like Carolyn Bordeaux... Well, it does not have it in the bag by any means, but we'll have a pretty good chance of, of taking it. Kyle, can you say the thing that you said before we went on air? I've got an even better joke now, which is... Uh, Yay! <laughs> <laughs> you can find his photo and his jawline that is big enough to land a C-130 on in the show notes for today's show. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. It's crisp. Crisp, I like You're it. You're a good looking man, Rich McCormick. We'll give you that. Crisp. Well, I, I liked what you said before about how he looked like a Grey's Anatomy doctor. He's yeah. he's the next. What, do we think he's McDreamy, McSteamy, or somebody else? I don't know. We really just need to like give them, uh, you know, inform them that we've made an in-kind donation to their campaign, <laughs> so that they don't get in trouble with the FEC. You know, the thing is, we don't have hot doctor shows anymore. Isn't Grey's Anatomy done? Or is no, it still on? it's no. still it'll it's never still be going. Done. Oh, it's still going. I thought that ended like it's going to outlive ago. ER. Oh, okay, so then good. Our our standard hot doctor reference is Grey's Anatomy. Yep, it might have actually already outlived ER. I'd have to check, and I don't feel like Googling it right now. Um, so let's touch on some uh, other results here before we go. Um, just some notes across the other congressional races. Uh, David Scott, uh, incumbent congressman in Georgia 13, he avoided a runoff in a primary challenge. Um, it was interesting. We talked with Michael Owens, who is the former chairman of the Cobb County Democrats. Michael Owens positioned himself in his campaign as a primary challenge, kind of along the lines of AOC taking on Joe Crowley in New York, a lot of pressure on Scott for being absent from the district, uh, for not pursuing bold reforms that would help people in his community. You know, I'm I'm not from that district. I, I apparently didn't have a good sense on uh, where that district was going to go. Michael Owens finished third, and David Scott narrowly avoided a runoff with former state representative Keisha Waits. Um, a couple other notes. The uh, McBath handle rematch is officially on in Georgia 6. There was not really any drama there. The field was basically cleared for Karen Handel on the Republican side and Lucy McBath, incumbent congresswoman, did not have a challenge there. And then in Georgia 9 and in Georgia 14, 
the Republican clown car show is almost certainly on <laughs> in both of those districts. Because in Georgia 9, there is a runoff between State Representative Matt Gertler. He is the guy who always votes no. Uh, it could be a resolution in favor of how cute babies are, and Matt Gertler would vote no. He is one of the Republican candidates. Uh, if you're from the Athens area or you've ever driven into Athens along Atlanta Highway and you see the gun shop called the Armory, uh, the other candidate in that runoff in Georgia 9 is the owner of that gun shop, Andrew Clyde. Yeah, that would be Clyde's Armory. Was <laughs> oh, it Clyde's Armory? <laughs> yes, it's Clyde's it's Armory. It's been a while. Well, Mr. Clyde is the other candidate in that race. And then in Georgia 14, we have potentially the first QAnon supporter in Congress, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who abandoned her congressional bid in the 6th District to go up to the 14th District. Uh, she is also known for harassing the survivors of school shootings, which is just insane. Uh, she is she was the leading candidate, um, and she will be in a runoff in that race. Glory, glory <laughs> to old George. I mean, we just got rid of Steve King, and we might get Steve King back in Congress in Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, any any notes across these races, or I'll give you the opportunity to shout out a couple of local state or local races too that are interesting before we go uh i would mention uh the U u.s house district 10 my own congressional district where tapas johnson green rather handedly beat andrew ferguson this is johnson's green's second rung at the seat where she kind of surprisingly beat the other two candidates that uh athens clark county felt like had a better chance uh this time uh, johnson green actually beat Ferguson in Clark County as well, at least the last time I looked. Uh, we, we're, we're still actually in the middle of reporting things. The The site is not completely, the Secretary of State site is not completely updated, so I apologize if any of our numbers end up being a little bit wrong in the future because democracy is slow. Uh, the other thing I would mention that is interesting to me is that uh, State House Minority Leader Bob Trammell uh, did handily beat his primary opponent, uh, but it was a little lower than I thought it would be. He uh, roughly has about 60% of the vote with uh, 4,955 votes reporting. And then Clark County, probably the most interesting but also sad story that we have is that longtime good commissioner Jerry Neesmith uh, who uh, died actually the weekend before the election and ended up still winning uh, <laughs> the election despite being dead. And because of this, it kind of brought in a, you know, obvious crisis of election law. Uh, but a as of right now, the county attorney is saying that Jesse Hewell, his opponent who got less votes, actually has won because with Neesmith being uh, you know, unfortunately deceased, his his votes are null, uh, null and void, and so Huell got the most votes, and so he has won. The other thing in Clark County is that the very long-time uh, Sheriff Ira Edwards, who had been quite popular until he uh, decided to side with ICE on some of their policies, was defeated by John Q. Williams. Uh, he will face a Republican challenger, but it is Clark County. So uh, while it is possible that John Q. will not be the next sheriff of Clark County, I am very skeptical uh, of that. So a couple of the big races down in my area, um, Atlanta and uh, slash Fulton County is the the DA's race is now in a runoff. 
Um, it is Fonnie Willis versus Paul Howard. Uh, Fonnie Willis is actually a former member of Paul Howard's staff. And Paul Howard, incidentally enough, is being investigated and is convinced that he will be, quote, totally exonerated, end quote, uh, related to some financial issues. And then also there will be a runoff in the um, Atlanta sheriff's race. Can I just say that Trump has ruined the phrase "total exoneration"? Right. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't really make it. Make it. It doesn't. It doesn't seem right to use it anymore, even though it is technically correct. And specifically, the sheriff's race I am referring to is for Fulton County Sheriff. Um, it's a runoff between incumbent Ted Jackson and um, Patrick Pat Labatt. So that will be interesting to keep an eye on to see how that goes. Hey, one other race I'd like to mention, just because it's you know an interesting uh, development, at least in my mind, is uh, unsuccessful candidate for the Democratic nomination for governor in 2018. Stacey Evans is returning to the state house because she uh, won 56.50 percent of the vote in a uh, four-person race. So you know, uh, happy to have Stacey Evans back in the house where she did a lot of good work previously. I'm sure she will do good work again. So while most of the big races avoided runoffs, there are some of the races that we mentioned, particularly those uh, Republican runoffs in open congressional seats. Those are probably only competitive for Republicans. So the quote unquote general election will be on August 11th, along with a few of those local races we mentioned there. Um, So we will keep an eye on all of the things we discussed today, the races as they move forward into the fall, whether or not we will have a competent election system for the fall. Um, All of those things will stay on our mind as we move forward, but we're going to leave today's discussion there. So Megan, thanks for joining today's podcast. Thanks for having me as always. And Luke, thank you as always also. Happy to be here. All righty, team. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks as always to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.